The book is called The Shack, and it's racing up the bestsellers list. Today, we'll take a look at this influential novel. Is it spiritually enriching or spiritually dangerous? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. I'm Kevin Harris, and we invite you to listen carefully to Pat's evaluation of this very popular novel. Now, even if you haven't read it, chances are someone among your friends and family have. Today on Evidence and Answers, you'll get a fair and accurate analysis of its message. By the way, stop by our website, evidenceandanswers.org, and check out the multitude of resources there. You'll help support Evidence and Answers as we take the greatest message of all time to the nations. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and you can download past shows, read Dr. Zukerin's articles, and find information on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Pat, you cannot go into an airport these days without seeing people reading a book called The Shack. And what's interesting is that the Christian church seems to have embraced this book. It's a bestseller among uh, Christians and non-Christians alike. And I haven't had an opportunity to read it. You have. Why don't you give us a synopsis on it? Yes, Kevin. You know, The Shack is by William Young, and he's become a New York Times bestseller. And Eugene Peterson, professor of uh, Spiritual theology at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, made this statement about the book. He says, The book has the potential to do for our generation what John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress did for his. Wow. It's that good. And as you know, the, next to the Bible, I think the Pilgrim's Progress is one of the best-selling theology books or you know, spiritual books in, in American history. So this is a spiritual book, The Shack. Yes, it is. And it addresses some very significant not only spiritual, but very practical life issues, answering some of the big questions we ask about life. I understand it's going to be made into a movie? Yes, very possibly. Okay. And so this statement by Eugene Peterson is a very significant statement, and many Christians say that the book has blessed them. However, you know, others have said that this book presents false doctrines that are heretical and dangerous. In fact, a well-known theologian and apologist who I know personally stated that this is one of the most dangerous books that he has read. So the diversity of comments and questions about the book created need to research and present an accurate biblical critique of this work. Absolutely. And that's what we want to do here. Let's kind of break it down a little bit. And I don't think we can be accused, Pat, of saying, well, it's real popular, therefore there must be something wrong with it. I mean, it's certainly possible to write a, uh, a book with good sound doctrine and it be a bestseller. It's happened in the past. Billy Graham has done it. Rick Warren has done it. But be that as it may, this book has uh, fallen under some criticism biblically. Right. And, you know, we need to investigate if the criticism is justified you know, such a wide range of response to this book, you know, and William Young creatively writes a fiction story and he seeks to answer the difficult questions about God and why the problem of evil. And, you know, in, in his story, the main character, his name is Mackenzie Allen Phillips, is a father of five children and experiences, you know, the unthinkable, painful tragedy of losing his youngest daughter to a violent murder at the hands of a serial killer. And it's through this painful ordeal, he asks the questions we all ask. How could a God allow something like this to happen? And, you know, a subsequent question that goes along with this, where was God in all of this? Where was he when this was all taking place? If you want to go right to the jugular, that would be the toughest of all, to lose a child. Right. And, you know, in this story, one day he receives an invitation to meet God at the shack where his daughter was molested and killed. And it's there he meets God the Father, who appears as a large African-American woman named Papa. God the Son appears as a Middle Eastern man in a leather tool belt. And God the Holy Spirit appears as an Asian woman 
named Sorayu. And in this place, over the course of a few days, Mac asks each member of the triune God the question he's dying to ask and receive an answer for, the problem of evil and where is God in all of this. And through these significant dialogues with each member of the Trinity, William Young presents a creative answer to God and the problem of evil. So do you think uh, Oprah will play the part of God in this? Is there it would be that? a good choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> heard rumors. It's uh, certainly okay to present God metaphorically. I'm not opposed to presenting God as a, a large black woman for metaphorical or literary purposes. I don't have a lot of trouble with that. Now, God identifies himself as father, and Jesus identified God as father, but God is neither male nor female. But anyway, Pat, maybe you have a problem with these metaphors. Is there a problem with using a literary metaphor to depict God? Well, Kevin, you know, this is a work of fiction, so I don't think that William Young was trying to present theological work. Okay, so I'll give him right. that. He I, wasn't trying to say God is a woman. Right. He's just portraying the principles here. Yeah. Right. And I'm not going to criticize his relationship with the Lord either. I've heard a couple of his interviews, and I think he's a brother in Christ, okay. you know, who is honestly trying to answer this question in a creative way, right. which would engage people. But yes, there are some concerns in the theology that he presents. So though it is a work of fiction, fiction does present spiritual truth, moral truth, even some philosophical truth, uh, moral virtue, or, or in this case, you know, theological or spiritual truth. Yeah, but obviously, C.S. Lewis used it uh, mm -hmm. through Aslan. Christ depicted as a lion. Right. So as any, even C.S. Lewis's work, you know, we should critique it biblically mm -hmm. uh, so that we are aware if there are some erroneous doctrines that are being taught there. Pat, any idea why this book is so enormously popular? You know, Kevin, I think he's addressing a question that we all ask. Why does God allow evil and suffering, and where is God in all of this? And William Young addresses that question in a very creative way through his novel here. Young uses the free will argument there. Mm -hmm. He doesn't go uh, much into depth about it, but he does present that answer that as humans, we are created in the image of God with the ability to choose to obey God or not to obey Him. And this presents the potential for evil. And so he does a good job of presenting that argument in a very creative way. Also, that we are limited, finite creatures who cannot see how all things fit together. So through this process, William Young is explaining how God sees the whole picture and we just see pieces here. And that even evil will not thwart God's ultimate plan for our lives and for the history of where he is directing the course of mankind. And that even through some of these evil acts, that God is still working through that, somehow using it to achieve his ultimate purpose. And finally, even though humans may choose to do evil, God is present and those acts of evil hurt him deeply. Even though we cannot understand the events in our lives, God asks us you know, ultimately to trust him. And so in a creative way, William Young addresses these questions. And I think that is part of the commendable features of this book. Also, he emphasizes having an intimate relationship that we are to have with God. You know, one of the dangers of our faith is that it can become cerebral. We get so focused on knowing doctrine and scripture that we neglect the emotional heart aspect of one's walk with God. And a faith that's centered on knowing doctrine only can be a cold kind of faith. And so those are some commendable aspects of this novel here. Okay, Pat, well, that's the good news. Let's, uh, let's go to some of the concerns. And I want to ask everyone to have an open mind here because I know that a lot of people get upset when this book is critiqued because it was meaningful to them. They enjoyed it. And I just want to ask people not to turn away. We're just trying to do a, a, an evaluation here. 
here. We're, we're trying to give the good and the bad of this book, this story, this novel, The Shack. So there's some, some commendable features. Let's talk about some of your concerns. You know, I don't doubt the sincerity of the author nor his relationship with God. I've, I've heard several of his interviews, and I think he has a relationship with Christ, and I'm not going to doubt that at all. But in seeking to address the issue of God and the problem of evil, he does present some flawed theological views that may confuse the nature of God and salvation, which has some of my concerns. Now, one of my concerns is the emphasis on experience and how it is given equal or stronger emphasis over the Bible in the novel. Uh, Young refers to the Bible superficially throughout the novel. However, his primary focus seems to be upon experience. And in fact, he unfortunately makes some critical remarks regarding the sole authority of God's Word and the training needed to interpret it properly. For example, on page 65, he states this, In seminary, he, the main character here, had been taught that God had completely stopped any overt communication with moderns, preferring to have them only listen and follow sacred scripture, properly interpreted, of course. God's voice had been reduced to paper, and even that paper had to be moderated and deciphered by the proper authorities and intellects. It seemed that direct communication with God was something exclusively for the ancients and uncivilized, while educated Westerners, access to God was mediated and controlled by the intelligentsia. Nobody wanted God to be in a box, just in a book. And so throughout the book, he unfortunately criticizes biblical teachings and the, quote, religious conditioning or seminary teaching. Well, it does seem like he's kind of downplaying the authority of the Scripture and the reliability and inspiration of the Scripture there a little bit. Uh, and, and so, Pat, tell us what you mean by his tendency to put experience over the authority of God's Word. And I think what Young's intention is this, is that he may be trying to encourage the audience to break stereotypes in our, in our thinking about God. You know, and, and this is commendable for, you know, we must always examine our theology of God and evaluate it, whether we've adopted the ideas of the culture or stereotypes or a false understanding that has been passed down to us. However, we are to evaluate all things through the Word of God. That includes our, our experiences, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And God's so, primary way to communicate to us is indeed through His Word. And Paul commands us to study the Word, to be workmen approved of God who handle the Word of God correctly. Scripture is the ultimate authority here. And it's a little disturbing how he kind of seems to downplay it here throughout his novel. And I, I agree with him. God doesn't only communicate through Scripture. Romans 1 teaches us that God communicates through what we call general revelation. However, our experience, what we discover through general revelation, must be in accord or consistent with God's Word. And so therefore, you know, God's Word is primary, and Paul exhorts us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, you know, to be men and women who diligently study and master the Word of God. So it was a little disturbing to see it downplayed like this, even criticized in the novel. That's one of the features that I'm very concerned about. It makes you vulnerable to the people of the world who say, I experienced a vision and there is no hell, or I experienced a vision and uh, Jesus is not God. You know, what if somebody said that? Well, so much for your experience. (laughs) But I I see your point here. And uh, uh, maybe we need to realize that God can use many ways and uh, he certainly can use our experience, but Mm -hmm. we certainly have the safety of the authority of God's word to judge that experience. Right. You know, and a second concern I have is there's confusion regarding the nature of God. Young in this presentation presents several incorrect and what can be confusing teachings regarding the nature of God and salvation. For example, in this story, God the Father appears as a large African-American woman, where in contrast, you know, the Bible teaches that God the Father never takes on physical form. You know, John chapter 4 teaches that God is spirit. 
First Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 states, God, the blessed and only ruler, the light whom no man, no one has seen or can see. But to add to this, you know, God appears as a woman named Papa. And it is true, you know, as, as you stated, that God is neither male nor female, but both of those attributes are found in God. However, in the Bible, God has chosen to reveal himself as father and not in the feminine gender, and he does not appear in physical form. So this may confuse our understanding of the nature of God. Also in the story, God the Father has scars on his wrists. Uh, we see that on page 95 of this novel, and this is contrary to a biblical teaching in which only Jesus, the Son, became human, and only Jesus died on the cross. And it is true that the Father shared in the pain of Christ's suffering, but he wasn't on the cross with Christ, as Young states in the novel. God stood as the judge over sin, and so the pain he experienced was as the judge who had to turn away and condemn his son who is bearing the weight of the sins of the world. So Christ bore the burden of our sins. God the Father was the judge who had to render judgment of the son. And in this novel, God the Father says on page 99, when we three spoke ourselves into human existence as the son of God, we became fully human. So Young teaches here that all three members uh, of the Trinity became human, which is contrary to Scripture. That's only the Son that became human, and so this distorts the uniqueness of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. seems to me that if he's going to go toward the Trinity and the incarnation of what it meant for Jesus to take on human flesh, that he should have consulted a few theologians about it. I mean, the people are already confused enough these days with wishy-washy theology. Yeah, Kevin, you bring up a great point. You know, the Trinity is one of the key essential doctrines of Christianity, and there is a lot of teaching that distorts the Christianity and false teaching of the cults and other heretical kinds of teaching. And so even though this is fiction, you know, writing on this issue, it's, it's a great concern. I think there needs to be accurate teaching on this if you're going to address this, even in a novel. Okay. So an overemphasis on the primacy of our experience over the authority of Scripture is one concern. Confusion about the, the Trinity, the doctrine of Trinity, the nature yeah, of God. Yeah. And also, uh, there's confusion regarding the nature of the Son, Jesus Christ. You know, in this story, Jesus appears as a Middle Eastern man with a plaid shirt and jeans and a tool belt. And now, you know, in the Bible, Jesus appears as a humble servant in Philippians chapter 2. But after the resurrection, you know, he appears in his glorified state. Mm -hmm. At the incarnation... When Jesus took on human flesh, he retained his divine nature and his attributes. His incarnation involved the addition of humanity, not the subtraction of any attributes of his deity. Uh, during his incarnation, Christ chose to freely restrict the use of his divine power and attributes. But there were certain occasions in which he exercised his divine attributes and demonstrated his authority over creation. However, in the shack, God says this, and I'm quoting the book here, Although he is also fully God, he has never drawn upon his nature as God to do anything. He has only lived out his relationship with me, living in the very same manner that I desire to be in relationship with every human being. He is just the first to do it to the uttermost, the first to absolutely trust my life within him, the first to believe in my love and my goodness without regard for appearance or consequence. So when he healed the blind, he did so as a dependent, limited human being, trusting in my life and power to be at work within him and through him. Jesus as a human being had no power within himself to heal anyone. So you see, he states that Jesus had no power within himself to heal anyone. Well, Jesus as the incarnate Son of God never ceased being God. He continued to possess the complete deity before, during, and after the incarnation. 
He did do miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit, but he also exercised his own power. So Young appears to be teaching an incorrect view on the incarnation of Christ that either Christ gave up his deity or aspects of it when he became human. In a nutshell, then, how should we view that, Pat? You said it earlier, just to reiterate, you said that none of Christ's attributes as God were diminished or subtracted in the incarnation, but he limited his rights to those attributes, his rights to deity? Right, his rights to exercise those attributes, freely withholding them so that he could appear in the form of a man in a form that we could comprehend and understand. You know, and of course, we've got a concern about the Holy Spirit appearing as an Asian woman named Sarayu. And once again, you know, throughout the scripture, the Holy Spirit does not appear in a physical bodily form. I mean, he appears in physical form as a dove at baptism, but he doesn't appear, you know, as a physical person throughout the scriptures. Throughout the scriptures, John 14, John 16, and throughout the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is also addressed in the masculine. And so I'm just concerned at the confusion that it may cause. Finally, in regards to the nature of God, the nature of the Trinity, All three members take on human form that confuses the uh, uniqueness of the incarnation, but also the idea, the relationship that's taught between the members of the Trinity is incorrect. Here on page 124, God says, So you think that God must relate inside a hierarchy like you do, but we do not. So Young teaches that all three members of the Trinity do not relate in a hierarchical manner. However, you know, the Bible teaches that each member of the Trinity are equal in nature, but there exists an economy or a hierarchy within the Trinity. You know, this is exemplified uh, throughout the Old and New Testament. In the New Testament, the Father is called the head, you know, and his headship is demonstrated in that he sends the Son. The Son doesn't send the Father. The Son is also the one who sends the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus came down from heaven not to do his own will, but he says, but the will of the Father. And 1 Corinthians 11, the head of Christ is God or the Father. And also 1 Corinthians 15, 27 and 28 speaks of creation being in subject to Jesus Christ. And then in verse 28, it says, then Jesus will be subjected to the Father. The Greek word for will be subjected is in what we call the future passive indicative. So this means that it is a future event where Jesus will forever be subjected to the Father. So these passages teach there is indeed a hierarchy within the Trinity in which all three members are equal in nature, but the principle of headship and submission is perfectly displayed in the Trinity. That's how it, to be a model for us in marriage and family and in leadership in the church. And this is another theological doctrine that is taught incorrectly in the novel. Seems bottom line then, if anybody's confused about the Trinity or in the incarnation and the nature of God, and they're looking for answers, this book is not it. <laughs> right. And, it might be entertaining mm-hmm. and inspiring, but it certainly is not very theologically accurate. Yeah, and you look at a lot of the heretical movements or cults that began, they began as a distortion of the Trinity. So yeah. this, this is quite concerning. Yeah, and I don't think that he can say, well, I wasn't trying to be theologically accurate. But from these quotes that you've given here, I I can think, well, yeah, you were. I mean, you're really trying to spell it out. You're trying to spell out and make uh, uh, analogies to Christian doctrine that are are false or that are faulty or that that fail. So please call Pat Zuckerman next time you write a book. (laughs) You know, I think uh, we could talk some more about the nature of God, but I want to move into a second area, and, and it's doctrines concerning salvation. That's another very key essential. And in this story, Young appears to be teaching pluralism. I mean, he states there in the novel that uh, he believes Jesus is the only way. However, he makes statements here that make it sound like there's more than one way to eternal life. Now, let me read a quote from page 182. In this story, Papa, 
or the father, says, Those who love me come from every system that exists. They are Buddhists or Mormons, Baptists or Muslims, Democrats, Republicans, and many who don't vote or are not part of any Sunday morning or religious institutions. I have followers who are murderers and many who are self-righteous. Some are bankers and bookies, Americans and Iraqis, Jews and Palestinians. I have no desire to make them Christian, but I do want them to join in their transformation into sons and daughters of my papa, into my brothers and sisters, into my beloved. So that statement kind of concerns me here. Young states that Jesus says he has no desire to make people of other faiths Christians or disciples of Christ. So, you know, I begin to wonder what is this transformation into sons or and daughters of my papa, what that entails. What well, what does it mean to be a son or daughter of Papa? Does not that mean to become a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ? Yeah. Here's another one on page one eighty two. Mac asks Jesus, Does that mean all roads lead to you? To this question, Jesus replies, not at all. However, when you continue the conversation, Jesus says this, most roads don't lead anywhere. What it does mean that I will travel any road to find you. So although pluralism is denied here, there's confusion regarding salvation. Yeah, it looks like he tried to head off a criticism there of there are many ways to God. Right. However, you know, it's a strange statement when Jesus says in this novel, most roads don't lead anywhere. Because in actuality, Jesus stated in the Gospels, most roads lead to destruction. Oh boy. Right, Matthew chapter 7, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. And so Young here fails to mention eternal judgment for those who don't receive Christ. And Christ makes it clear he is the only way to eternal life and all other roads don't lead to nowhere. They lead to eternal destruction. And also he states that Jesus states in the novel, I will travel any road to find you. And the message appears to teach that Jesus will reveal himself to people no matter what road or or religion they may be on. Jesus doesn't ask them to leave that road and follow the narrow path of salvation in this novel, which is what he clearly is asking us to do in the Gospels. Repent, turn from sin, and follow the narrow road that leads to eternal life. And later in the conversation on the atoning work of Christ on the cross, Mac asks this, what exactly did Jesus accomplish by dying? Popper answers, through his death and resurrection, I am now fully reconciled to the world. Mac is confused and he asks, is the whole world reconciled to God or only those who believe? And Papa responds by saying, reconciliation is not dependent upon faith in Christ. Here's a quote from page 192. The whole world, Mac, all I'm telling you is that reconciliation is a two-way street. I have done my part totally, completely, Finally, it is not the nature of love to force a relationship, but it is the nature of love to open the way. So Young appears to be saying that all people are already reconciled to God. God is waiting upon them to recognize it and enter into a relationship with him. So uh, these dialogues appear to give a pluralistic message, although it is denied on page 192. The ideas presented by Young, you know, that Jesus is not interested in people becoming Christians, presents a tone of, of a pluralistic message of salvation, which I think confuses the message of salvation, which is a key doctrine of Christianity. Pat, these are some serious concerns. Uh, you've kind of given the good and the bad here. What do you recommend for Christians, for seekers? Should we read it? Stay away from it? What? You know, Kevin, and many Christians may disagree with my position here, but I believe we should be reading novels like this that capture the attention of the culture and see what it is the culture is talking about and engage them in conversation. It wrestles with some of the deep 
theological and practical life questions that we're asking. However, Hmm. I'm going to bring a caution here. As with any book, you need to read it with discernment. And so I wouldn't recommend reading it alone. I would recommend reading it and dialoguing with people. Grab a small group together and discuss the issues raised in this book. Do you agree with it? Do you disagree with it? Where does it deviate from biblical teaching? And be able to articulate and explain why you disagree with some of his theology. Or if you agree with his theology, why do you agree? And I recommend going to evidenceandanswers.org or probe.org and reading my review on The Shack. Pat, it's inevitable this will become a movie. And depending on the director or the studio who gets a hold of this, they can lean it one way or another. And again, rumors that Oprah will play God in the movie. If she has anything to do with the script, she will certainly move it toward pluralism, many ways to God, and her new age beliefs that she holds very firmly. All the more reason that Christians ought to be discerning when they read this book and be able to articulate where he deviates from good biblical teaching. When we engage the culture and unbelievers on the movie or the book, we can uh, engage them intelligently on the conversation and articulate our position uh, regarding the biblical teaching and how it compares with the movie or the novel. Well, we have run out of time, so let's pick it up there next time on Evidence and Answers. By the way, if you want to keep a quality apologetics program on the air and on the web, please support Evidence and Answers with your prayers and financial gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing the many resources we have online, including Pat's new book with Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. So check out our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you can also invite Pat to speak at your next event, church, campus, or conference on the most crucial issues facing the world today and how the Christian worldview provides the best answers to the best questions. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Be sure and join us again for Evidence and Answers 